the news talk ZB early morning host, she had a particularly bad experience with COVID-19 recently. She was off work for three weeks and she returned this week with a relatively harrowing story to tell. And here's how that sounded. It is the pits. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. I don't think I've ever been so sick. And it's hard when you get COVID and it's so brutal when others, not naming any names, my husband, get it and say, oh, this is a non-event. It's not a non-event. It's a unique virus and we all suffer it differently. And I'm here to say to every single person struggling with it or the fallout from it, I hear you. I feel you. I see you. I feel your pain. Now, um, I'm sure I've seen her saying pretty much what she doesn't like people saying these days now that she's had COVID herself not too long ago. But carry on. She goes on to say that she's learned a lot of, re- of lessons from, from her, her bout of COVID. And, uh, I mean, some of those are just practical, right? I mean, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't ask people what they need because they'll always say they don't need anything and all this sort of stuff. But she also uh, lists a few other lessons like that one there. It's really annoying <laughs> uh, when you're laid up with a terrible case of this virus and people use their own highly specific personal experiences, evidence that the disease is mild. And I mean, it's really horrible to become gravely ill and feel like you have no control over your situation, especially if that illness was preventable. You're right. I kind of wish that the Kate Hawksby of today could go back and teach those lessons to the Kate Hawksby of March this year, because back then she had a very different message on Omicron's severity and the validity of taking broader lessons from it for, about it from your personal story. So this is what she said back in March. Uh, my brother had COVID last week. Omicron struck him and his whole family, bar one child. Uh, he was asymptomatic, bar a dry cough and a tickly throat, all of which he said under normal circumstances he would have gone to work with. It lasted three days. Uh, he said he wouldn't even rank it in the top 10 of head colds. So from where he sat, he said it wasn't worth the fear and angst afforded it. The, the Kate Hawksby of of just the other day, make any reference to the Kate Hawksby of March, Hayden? Uh, No reference to the Kate Hawksby of March. And it wasn't just that that she said in March. I mean, this wasn't just, you know, Mike Hosking, her husband, going along saying actually it's a non-event. She extrapolated out her brother's experience with COVID to just about uh, to, to inform the entire country's, uh, what she thinks the entire country's health strategy and economic strategy should be in response to the virus. So back in March, she didn't really have this kind of perspective that she's just had. Uh, here's what she had to say. So what should the government be doing here? Well, firstly, except like every other country in the world has, that Omicron's mild to moderate and has overrun our response plan. In line with that, they need to make positive result isolation periods five days not 10, remove all onerous scanning in requirements from businesses given, you know, there is no contact tracing now anyway, disband MIQ immediately, welcome back international visitors and attempt to rebuild our tourism, international education and hospitality sectors. Advice given, advice taken, right? I mean, the government has taken much of those steps we have, let it (laughs) Well, they must listen to Uh, Kate Hawksby. She's got her finger on the pulse, right?
Yeah, I mean, actually, really, it was that's that's the policies. I mean, but it turns out not everyone's had quite as mild an experience of COVID as her brother. I mean, about 70 people a week are dying of the virus right now. We've got thousands more suffering long-term side effects, long COVID, and even healthy people like, presumably, uh, Kate Hawksby are sometimes becoming severely, really severely ill and suffering. And, I mean, not to mention the economy is kind of on the decline and the health system is overloaded, which is, I thought, why we were supposed to be opening up anyway. But anyway, anyway, Brian. Doesn't Kate, uh, do you think she deserves some credit for at least saying, okay, it's a bigger deal than I thought it was? Yeah, and maybe I'm being a bit mean here, right? Like, we should, like, I think when a politician should get credit for changing their mind, people should get credit for changing their mind. People should be able to fess up. The problem is that she kind of didn't, fess up she didn't even say sorry as you say she didn't acknowledge that kate hawksby of march expressed some different views she didn't say that she changed her mind like her husband mike hosking she sometimes seems to kind of be cursed to exist in this eternal now blissfully unaware of what she said in previous months or weeks or days or even hours hours sometimes so i mean the second is why did it take this kind of personal experience to kindle this kind of empathy in March this year, it wasn't like this was a totally unknown virus. There was an abundance of evidence about the harm a widespread Omicron outbreak would inflict. We knew then that many immunocompromised elderly people would die. In that first opinion piece, those people were kind of tossed off with a couple of throwaway lines. Oh, some people might suffer, but we're all going to be all good before a missive about how their lives are not worth taking on some extra sovereign debt. And their suffering was inevitable in a widespread outbreak. Why couldn't Kate Hawksby hear them then? Why couldn't she feel their pain back then? Why did it take her having to feel the pain herself? Let's move on to the next thing. Roe versus Wade. <laughs> Local reaction uh, to this momentous US Supreme Court decision. So, I mean, momentous, global news, international news, and of course our local media is trying to find a local angle. And the most obvious one is uh, that the leader of the opposition, Christopher Luxon, has expressed views very similar to those which motivated the movement behind this US anti-abortion decision. And as a reminder, this is what he said to News Hub's Jenna Lynch back after he was, well, he rose to the National Party leadership in December last year. Can you just answer the question whether you think abortion is tantamount to murder or not? That's a, that's a yes or no question. That should yeah, be pretty well, easy. I'm a pro-life, pro-life person. You know, so, and, and, so and, yes. And that's what a pro-life position is. So that's Christopher Lux, and those comments obviously became newsworthy again in light of the bans on abortion being introduced in many states across the U.S. as we speak, and it became, I mean, they became all the more so when the National MP for Tamaki, Simon O'Connor, posted a Facebook status after after the Supreme Court's decision saying, today is a good day. So, I mean, as you know, as you've probably seen, Christopher Luxon's been moving to quell concerns about his party's intentions on abortion all week, saying there'll be no changes to the laws governing it under any administration he leads. But there's still some awkward questions being raised about what he actually believes. I mean, given he did say there that abortion is tantamount to murder, is he saying that he's kind of fine with people allegedly murdering babies under his government's watch? And I mean... That point was highlighted by Labour's Grant Robertson, who said that people have a right to be sceptical about what Luxon says, given the views he expressed. And Amelia's, uh, <laughs> Amelia's News Hub's Amelia Wade has pressed further on that, uh, just asking Luxon to clarify his stance, and that's elicited this soundbite. What is your opinion of women who get abortions? As I said, I've got a pro-life stance. It's a very difficult and a very agonising decision. 
there's part of me that thinks cynically Labour would want to attack this because Labour senses, as I think National also senses now, that politically there's no mood in New Zealand at the moment, not from a, not from a majority anyway, anywhere near a majority, to follow the United States in this regard. Labour senses that, so it's it's going for the juggler here in terms of, well, not necessarily the juggler, but certainly putting Luxton on the pressure because he's had a good run until this. And, and that's a critique of the media coming from the right, right? That we, we don't have that culture, we don't want one, and people should maybe just be a bit quieter about this in case we get one, and it does become this matter of roiling public debate. And uh, on that first or that second point that you made, uh, whether there's an appetite for this sort of thing, that's what the right-wing commentator Ben Thomas talked about on News Talk ZB, and he said, you know, we've had anti-abortion politicians in power, even a Prime Minister, Bill English, and they've been reticent to act on their views due to the fact that, as you say, most people here believe in abortion rights. So here's a clip of him there. You know, we've seen pro-life Prime Ministers like Bill English, Jim Bolger, Deputy Prime Ministers like Jim Anderson, just not go anywhere near while they're in government. He also said that, why are we making this into a culture war issue like in the US? And that was echoed by some of National's more liberal MPs. The deputy leader, Nicola Willis, was criticised for staying silent about the court's decision, and she eventually told the Herald that Labour was creating what she called needless anxiety about what she called ir- and making what she called irresponsible attempts to import US-style culture wars into New Zealand. Which I can imagine her doing. But I can also... The thing is, we've seen how quickly ideas can spread... Those convoys, those freedom convoys, one, one day it's in Canada, the next day it's on the steps of Parliament here. So these things spread pretty fast, although I think in this case the media actually got a really good response out of Nicola Willis in terms of her, I think, putting her stamp as the deputy leader on this and to some extent, I think, shutting any, any chance of this actually getting any traction within the National Party by the way she came out in public eventually on the, on the situation. You know, th- this isn't like Nicola Willis speaks for the National Party on this. Two-thirds of their caucus court- did vote against the decriminalisation of um, abortion when it was raised in 2020. Having said that, there is real concern. I, I can appreciate that there is real concern that, this- that if abortion is transformed into a wedge issue, that's how the US got into this mess in the first place, right? When it becomes a fundamental political dividing line, it's more likely its opponents will make it a legislative priority if they gain power. And, you, you know, you say that maybe it's not going to raise its kind of head that much in New Zealand, but I, I, if you're listening to Duncan Garner's show on Today FM this week, I mean, you could see how a culture war might play out. He dealt with this flood of men calling in to express their anti-abortion views, and he, and he eventually launched into this exasperated monologue. And these are your bodies, these are your decisions, and I don't really understand, under the name of God or religion, that the, how, how these men get off and telling you what you should do, this entitled nature of men who say, this is what you must do with your body. Who the hell are you? What, what, what bloke goes around filling their days and their time and their energy consumed by this? Go and get a life. So there you go. That's why I reckon only it might get some traction with a minority religious conservative party at the next election, but I don't think the mainstream parties are going to go near it. Not even I national. mean, having said that, can I argue the other side? For one thing, you know, there's, there's political self-interest maybe in Labour um, 
like raising the debate, as you say, maybe they see some something, some hay to be made there. But there's probably a degree of political self-interest in Nicola Willis saying that people should stop the political point scoring. I mean, it would benefit her politically if people would go and stop talking about the National Party leader's publicly stated position that abortion is tantamount to murder and go back to discussing the cost of living crisis. It's kind of hard to get the politics out of politics. And yeah. Well, the I guess Hayden... Joyce. I mean, it's the concerns justified, right? I mean, in some ways, right? Like looking at this a different way, the U.S. could be seen as proof positive that progress isn't linear and it can be rolled back. And actually, Amy Adams, the former National Party MP, was on the radio this week saying, "Look, there is real division in the National Party on this, and two thirds of its core caucus did vote against that bill in 2020, and they proposed amendments that would roll back abortion." Uh, access to abortion so it's not like there's no smoke there there might not be fire but there's definitely smoke well i guess and if if you had say we had a conservative christian party suddenly emerging out of nowhere and it has the balance of power at the end of the next election and maybe what you've talked about hayden might come to pass and as as you say the other thing is that as for the u.s you know culture wars I, I'm sorry to, to inform you, they're kind of already here. I mean, you might have noticed them camped out on Parliament's lawn. Oh, yeah, I did. Did you notice that? I walked that, through the camp the several they're, they're times. Check it out, Hayden. <laughs> yes. And so the question, I think, for pro-choice supporters is whether to sit back and hope these movements don't gain momentum or to apply as much political pressure as possible to protect their own position. And in this case... They chose the latter option, and they garnered a strong commitment from an anti-abortion politician to not act on his views and power. So probably a good day in the office, really. I mean, arguably, that's a success story for speaking out strongly and decisively. Now, Hayden, we've got four minutes. I want to ask you about the NZ Me deal with Google. What's going on here? To recap, last year, the New Zealand media all banded together and said that they're going to collectively bargain with Facebook and Google. They were insp- they're kind of inspired by Australia, where all the major media companies over there got their own pay deals with those social media giants after the Australian government proposed legislation that would force those media giants to pay them. So they eventually kind of under duress came to the table with the media companies. Ours was going to be even better than that because some of the minor media companies were part of this union. We were going to make sure that no one was left out, like what happened in Australia, where minor media companies were frozen out. that was all going swimmingly until NZME withdrew from the collective and announced it was negotiating its own deal a few months ago. And the, the new news, the new news, the update is that that deal is now done. And what does it mean? Uh, it delivered to shareholders back when the negotiation was first announced, told them to expect something in the realm of, I think, a $5 million bump in profit. So something around that, maybe. That's about probably what you're looking at. But, I mean, it weakens the position of other media, kind of undermines them, which is probably a double benefit for NZB in these difficult financial times, uh, but probably won't uh, make them very popular about about town when it comes to dealing with other media companies. So let me make an uneducated guess that what NZB has done has got some kind of compensation from Google um, in return for Google running its stuff. Google Showcase runs news and you get paid for being part of it. So it's part of that. Uh, there's, there's various avenues that Google has for paying news. But it's, it's basically that. that They're paying for their premium content and, uh, the, and Google's paying for the use of it. And uh, the, the big contention is whether you can make them pay to link to it because that kind of creates concerns about the open internet, which I won't go into now. But, I mean, the thing is it's another – what is it? Another – 
another source of income for the media. And I'm not sure that we're going to get quite the same outcry over it as we get from when the government funds the media, right? I'm not, oh, I'm not sure yeah. we're going to have kind of a, a the, public outcry about whether the NZME is now beholden to Google, but, which I find kind of funny because this is another area that the media can be influenced if they don't set up really strong uh, dividing lines between editorial and the money coming in through advertising. If we're talking, we're talking about this $55 million public interest journalism fund all the time, that's a very small fraction of the media's income. And really, this kind of thing is actually a bigger one, and we don't really talk about it that much at all. 